0: I want to start out our time this morning. I just want to say Happy Mother's Day to everybody here. I know we have a lot of moms in the room. So we want to say Happy Mother's Day to you. We're thankful that you are here. And I thought about this. And you think about the, the, the mixture of emotions that this day can bring all over the place. And we have moms in this room. Uh, their kids have moved out of their house. And in a lot of ways, you miss your kids. You miss being with them every day. You, you cherish those days. You're thankful you know, for them growing up and not living with you forever, but you miss your kids. And then there's some moms with, with small children all over the place at Grace. This is really common. There's, there's, mom, there's women in this room that wish they were moms that are broken, heartbroken over this day. There's people in this room that your mother's passed away and you remember this day and it causes pain. And so all over the place, the, the best thing that we can do anytime the church gathers, here's, here's how we encourage everybody at the same time. In this day, we just encourage you. We just want to lift up Christ. We just want to encourage you with Jesus in Christ today. And so, this is what we're going to do. This is what we do every week. And so, if you're here today and you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we are walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. Uh, right now, we are walking through the last few hours in the life of Jesus. And so, we've made our way to the end of Mark's Gospel. And here's what we're going to do today. We are going to stare at the words of God. We are going to read the words of God. We are going to linger over the words of God. I'm going to teach you the words of God and we're going to think about the words of God and we're going to ask God to reveal these words to us until we see Christ, until we're encouraged, until we're encouraged in the Savior. This is our aim. Uh, Psalm 119 says that this is a reference to expositional preaching. Just teach the book. Read the book. Teach the book. It says the unfolding of His words gives light. And that's what we're about to do. And so we're going to... We're going to call on God, and we're going to ask God to help us. And so I'm going to pray for us, and I invite you to join me. Lord, we love you today, and we thank you, God, that, Lord, you have made us your people, your church, Lord. And we just we just confess to you freshly today, Lord, that today we would, we would still wander in darkness and the blindness, the blindness of our sins, Lord, if you had not opened our eyes to the glory of Christ And we thank You, Lord, for saving us. God, we thank You that we come to You today as Your people called by Your name. Lord, and we ask You more than anything else, Lord, we we ask You, just what was prayed earlier, God, that You would increase our love for You, Lord Jesus. Lord, do such a work in our souls that even the mention of Your name just causes adoration and worship and love and, and thankfulness and fear and trembling. All of it, Lord. God, let it be real. Let it be vivid. God, drive cold, cultural thoughts about You far from this place, far from our minds. Let us know You in reality, Lord Jesus. Let let us know You like You truly are. God, remind us even now that You are worshipped with voices like earthquakes by created angels. God, that proclaim Your holiness even in this moment. God, let us join on, Lord. Let Let us catch a glimpse of You in glory and majesty. Jesus, we thank You, God, that of all the places that we could be in this world, God, that You've gathered us together with Your church and that You've given us an opportunity to open Your words, God. And we just ask, Lord, that You'd meet us here today, that You'd encourage our souls in Christ. All over this room, Lord, stir us up to love You more, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for any in this room that don't know You, God, I pray that You would help them to hear Your words with power and that You would open up their eyes to Your glory, Lord Jesus. There's nothing about You that's boring. And we pray, God, that You would stand by Your Word, Lord, and that You would make it true in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to... Dive into the passage this morning about Jesus being arrested. This is where we're going. So we're about to read verses 43 through 52 together. And I'll just remind you, this is the most important words you're going to hear in the next hour. So if you're going to really lean in and pay attention, lean in and pay attention to God's words. This is, this is truth without error, straight from the mouth of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 43 through verses 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Alright, I want to hang a question that I want you to think about over this entire time. The question is this. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that should have loved you? Have you ever been betrayed by someone that should have loved you? I want you to hold that in your mind. And as we walk through this text and the story of Jesus being portrayed to these, to these guards, I want you to think about this. Has this ever happened to you? Because we're about to read the story of the most satanic, corrupt, wicked betrayal in human history. And before we, want to, before we unpack the story, I just want to remind you very quickly of where we're at in this gospel. Mark chapter 14. Just hours before this story that we're about to walk through together, Jesus sat down. At the last Passover. And he proclaimed really the end of the Jewish Passover. And he proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of the Passover. And he looked at that Passover lamb and he said, that's my body. And he looked at the cup that he passed to his disciples and he proclaimed it as his blood. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. And he inaugurates the Lord's Supper to be remembered in his name. So he finished it. He's the lamb of God that was slain instead of us. Then he walks out of that meeting and he begins to agonize in the garden. Ryan taught us this last week. He begins to agonize in the garden in prayer to God. He begins to feel just a little bit of the cup of wrath that he's going to drink instead of us. Okay, While all this is going down, the enemies of Jesus, they're putting the finishing touches on their murder plot. They're getting their final plan together to arrest Christ and ultimately to kill him. And so our story picks up as at the end of this midnight prayer session, Jesus rises up and He's been encouraged through prayer by the Holy Spirit. And we have this passage before us of the arrest of Jesus. It's a very short story, but it's full of drama. So with God's help, we're going to try to enter into this story and see it vividly. We want to stare at it until we see the glory of Christ. We want to see it vividly and we want to understand it clearly. So let's start with verses 43 through 45. It says this. I'll read it to you again. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. So point number one from this passage is that Jesus is the man of sorrows. In what way? He was betrayed by his own. He was betrayed by Judas. I want you to zone in on this phrase. One of the twelve. That phrase is used eight times in the Gospel. Keeps coming up. Judas, one of the twelve. It's almost like his last name. Judas, one of the twelve. And the gospel writers are drawing us in to, to, to close attention to this, that Jesus was betrayed by one of the men who knew him better than anyone else on this planet. It's one of his closest companions. And we know from the gospel accounts that Judas, he's been in personal contact with Jesus for several years on a daily basis. Can you imagine being with Christ on a daily basis? Sinless humanity is beside you. You wake up, you eat with Him. You hear Him talk. You hear Him pray. You hear Him teach. You hear Him do miracles. You hear Him minister. A sinless human being is with you. And then you have this story of this man that's been with Jesus for years. And he walks in and he leads this crowd to arrest Christ. I want to remind you that this did not surprise Jesus. We know that from Mark 9.31. Jesus knew that a day was coming when He would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. In fact, Jesus has known that this day was coming for years now. Jesus has known it was coming. So it's not a surprise to Jesus, but the Word of God is very clear that this hurt Christ. This betrayal hurt His heart. This is, this is a real betrayal felt by a real man. I want to read you a couple of Psalms. These Psalms prophesy about the pain that Jesus feels in this betrayal story. Psalm 41.9, listen closely. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, verse 12-15, through 15. listen to this. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. So do you see this? Do you see the pain that Jesus is processing in His humanity? This is one of the twelve. You just draw a circle on a piece of paper and mentally you write in that circle the twelve closest people to you on this planet and you imagine one of them betraying you to the point of turning you over to guards and, and initiating, really initiating the murder plot of the Son of God. This is what happened. He feels this pain in his soul. Okay? I want to give you just a quick picture of the wickedness of Judas. Sometimes I think I can wrongly think that, man, those, those religious leaders, they taught Judas into doing this. That is not true. The betrayal of Jesus, this was actually Judas's idea. Okay, It was his idea. He initiated this in his own mind, his own desires. I want to read this verse to you from Matthew 26. This is Matthew's account of this story. Listen to the words that Jesus Judas goes to the, to the religious leaders. Listen to the words that he says. Verse 14 and 15, Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me if I do this? This is his idea. And the Word of God says they paid him 30 pieces of silver. He initiates it. Exodus twenty-one thirty-two tells us that 30 pieces of silver, that's the price of a slave according to the law of Moses. If a slave dies and it's you're liable for someone else's slave dying, you pay the person 30 pieces of silver. This is the price of a life of a slave. And what that means is that Judas sold Jesus for the price of a slave. That's about how valuable that he saw Christ. He saw Jesus as no more valuable than a slave, and so he sells him for 30 pieces of silver. This is an example of 2 Corinthians 4.4. Satan has blinded this man to the glory of Christ. He's with him on a daily basis. He knows facts about him. He knows where he's from. He knows biographical information. He knows certain teaching of Jesus, but he doesn't see the value of Christ. He's blind to the glory of Christ. Okay, And I wonder if there's anybody here like that this morning that you have heard things about Jesus your entire life maybe. And you know facts, you know biographical information, you know some Sunday school stories about Jesus, but there's no heat in your soul for Christ. You don't have any treasure for this Christ. You don't have any value for this Christ. What that means, okay? what that means is that you are blind to the glory of Christ. Christ is immeasurably glorious. He is the the treasure in the field that's worth selling all just to buy the field to dig up the treasure and have he's the glorious one and what satan does is he blinds lost humanity to the glory of christ that's why when you share the gospel with someone you can lay out the most powerful message in human existence and you can walk through it all parts of it the, the glory and the righteousness of God. The, the great sinfulness of man. The provision of Jesus Christ for lost humanity. You, humanity's only, only hope to be saved. And you can call humanity to repentance and faith. And you can finish that sentence and somebody can lead forward and say, so what? Who cares about that? What's going on? In that scenario, what's going on is that someone is being blinded to the glory of Christ. They might understand factual information, but they have no value that they're attaching to Jesus in their soul. This is what's going on in Judas's life. He's blind to the glory of Christ, and all he cares about is money. And so from this passage, we know that Jesus, want, Judas wanted to get rid of Jesus. Judas wanted to get rid of Jesus, but... Then insert this detail at the end of that sentence. Not only did he want to get rid of Jesus, he wanted to make a profit off the murder of the Son of God. You catch the wickedness of that. That's satanic. This is evil to the core. This is is arguably the greatest sin in human history. He wanted to turn a profit off the death of Christ. Not only did he want Him gone, he wanted to make some money off the transaction. So back in our story we see that Judas and these guards, they agree on a sign. They're going to give a sign. He's going to walk in. Judas is going to plant a kiss on the cheek of the Savior and the guards are going to know whichever one he kisses, that's the one we want to arrest. And so I want to just pull out, this, this is part of the glory of Christ in this story. Okay, This sign that we see them agree upon Because there had to be a sign, this is just a reminder that Jesus looked so much like any other man that a sign had to be given to identify Him from strangers in the garden. The One who created all things by the Word of His power Okay? The one who enters into humanity in his incarnation. He is so veiled, the Lord of glory is so veiled in human flesh that they could be looking at a crowd of ten people and they didn't even know which one was Jesus. Okay, There's no external sign that would have identified him. That means he's not levitating. Okay, He's not floating. He doesn't have angel wings. There's no halo on his head. He's not glowing. Okay? And contrary to popular artwork, he's not the only white guy in first century Israel in the middle of a bunch of Jews and Italian soldiers. Okay, there's nothing about him that makes him stand out in the middle of the crowd. The Lord of glory is there and they had to give a sign just to announce who he was. And the sign was a kiss. Okay, this was a kiss of greeting. Kiss of greeting. This was, this was to show love this kiss would have been to show honor in this culture. And what happens here is this gesture of love and friendship. Judas uses this. Judas was pretending to love Jesus. So he walks into the garden and he plants that sign of friendship on Jesus' cheek. And I want you to see the hypocrisy there. Even in the act, okay, of him betraying and giving up the Son of God, even why this is going down, he's. He's such a hypocrite, such a pretender that the way that he gives him over is he gives him over with an act of love, with an act of friendship. Okay, this is why many people refer to this as the kiss of death. It's a kiss of hypocrisy. He's a pretender, and then to top it off, Judas greets Jesus with the word "rabbi." Okay, and that's another title of respect, title of honor. He's in the middle of initiating the murder of Jesus, and he says "rabbi," and then plants a kiss on Jesus' cheek. So the point here is that Jesus, Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is displaying fakery. He is putting on a dog and pony show. Planting kisses on the cheek of the Savior. Calling the Savior Rabbi. And what we see here, he's pretending to love Christ. Just like he has been for years. And we know that Jesus doesn't tolerate his hypocrisy. Matthew, Matthew's Gospel records the same story. And in Matthew we find that Jesus looks at Judas after this kiss and He said, Friend, do what you came to do. Translation. Stop the hypocrisy and get on with it. I know what you're doing. Get on with it. Stop the fakery. Stop the pretending. Alright? The fact that this is an inside job makes this the worst act of treachery and betrayal in human history. It would be like... The president being assassinated by his own cabinet member. Do you understand that? This adds to the wickedness of his sin. He betrayed Judas. Jesus. He will forever be remembered as the one who who betrayed Jesus. He is Judas, one of the twelve. The poser, the hypocrite, the thief, the hardened deceiver. And in verse 44, he's going to be punished forever for these words. He's being punished right now as we speak for these words in verse 44. Judas says, seize him and lead him away under guard. In a million years, he will still be paying for the wickedness of what he did in that garden. And before we leave this section, I want to point out that the Scriptures are clear that Judas will not be the only one who pretends to love Jesus when it all shakes out. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name? and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Judas is going to be leading this massive crowd of pretenders in eternity. And isn't that the sobering fact? Jesus really did use this word. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Does that mean a few or many? Okay? And, and sometimes we can get this weird idea that the only people in hell are, are uh, Hitler and Stalin. You know, or... Jesus didn't say that. that. That is foreign to the Word of God. Jesus really did say that many, many are going to say to Him on that day, Lord, Lord, and they will be cast away from Christ. Cast away from His presence and punished forever. These are the pretenders. The ones who pretended to love Jesus. They said, Lord, Lord, with their mouth, but their lives, they're engulfed with lawlessness and hypocrisy. Okay? These are the pretenders. Maybe some of us here today need to be warned with these words. And maybe some of us here today need to reflect on this. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a Judas? Okay, Have you ever been betrayed by someone that should have loved you. Jesus has. We see this in this passage. And I, and I hope this is encouraging to everyone in this room. That Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have some of the closest people in your life work vicious hate for you. He knows how that feels. He feels it in His bones. Okay? Okay? And this is just part of it. That he enters into the full human experience. He knows what life is like in our sinful world. And he's come. And he can identify with us. And we're going to see this in several different places today. Point number three. Jesus was seized by the crowd. Let's go back to point number two. Sorry. Jesus was rejected by the Sanhedrin. All right. Point number two, Jesus was rejected by the Sanhedrin. I just want to draw this out real quick. The crowd that came hunting Jesus that night, the Word of God says they came from the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. And those three parties made up this ruling body in Israel known as the Sanhedrin. And these are the men of power that are behind the death of Jesus. I want you to picture them like an Israeli mafia. Okay? And they, they had all the power in Israel. They hardly ever agreed on anything. You see them arguing all over the Gospels. But they unite together to get rid of Christ. Okay? These are the men of power. And you get another picture of Christ here. He knows what it's like to be rejected by men of power. He knows what it's like to be persecuted by the government. He knows what it's like to be rejected by religious leaders. In fact, the Sanhedrin is an example of Ecclesiastes 3.16. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Of anybody on the planet that should have greeted the Savior with hearts bowed down, prostrate on the floor, worshiping this Christ, it should have been the high priest, it should have been the scribes, it should have been these men of power, but they rejected Him. Jesus knows what this is like. He experienced it. Point number three, Jesus was seized by the crowds. We're going to spend some time on this one. Jesus was seized by the crowds. You see a crowd enter into the Garden of Gethsemane on this night. And I want you to picture this crowd like a black ops strike force. This is like a special mission. A secret mission. They are on a mission to capture Christ. Christ. And they come under the cover of darkness with torches in their hand. This is the secrecy of the mission. They were sent by the Sanhedrin, the men of power. And these men, they don't want the people to know that they're arresting Christ right at the close of this feast day. And so they do this in secret. They go to capture Christ in secret. We don't know exactly how many men are in this crowd. Okay, Uh, There was enough there to handle the job. Uh, There probably wasn't too many there to go against the secrecy of the mission. I I have no idea how many are there, okay? But they're there. And they're a mixture of temple police and Roman soldiers. And we know that from John 18.2, okay? 18.12, sorry. So this group that comes, it's a mixture of temple police and Roman soldiers. And apparently they thought that Jesus and His disciples were going to fight them because they come with weapons, Okay? Swords and clubs. They didn't come, these are not traffic cops coming into the garden. Okay? They didn't come to write Jesus a ticket. These men are coming to handle business, and they are about to lay violent hands on Jesus. The temple police would have been the ones to carry the clubs. These were the the Jewish police from the temple. They were forbidden to shed blood, so they did not carry lethal weapons. But the Roman soldiers. Trained killers. They're carrying the swords. They're carrying the daggers. These men are trained to put a quick end to human life. And so they enter into the garden with their weapons. Okay, And these are symbols of worldly power. This is how the world exerts force and exerts power. They conquer through violence. And this is the picture of the swords and the clubs in the garden. Now, if you're reading this, and maybe you're unfamiliar with this story, you can see this, tempted to see this on the surface at least, as this is just another example of a weak man being overpowered by the strong in this world. Okay? This is not what is happening on this night. This is not an example of a weak man being overpowered. John, the writer of John's Gospel, he fills in some details about this arrest and I want to read them to you. John 18 verse 4 says this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Did you catch that? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him. Anyone who's read the Gospel, what's about to happen to Jesus? Murder. He is about to be murdered on a cross. He is about to be nailed to a cross. Tortured. Okay? Mocked. He knows all that's going to happen to him. And that verse says he does what? Draws back? That verse says he steps forward. I want you to see that in the garden. They come to him. He knows everything that's about to happen. And he doesn't draw back. He takes a few steps towards his enemies. Okay, he, This is not a story of a weak man being overpowered. I want to read you more John 18. Listen to this. Verses 5 and 6. They asked, Jesus asked these men, Who are you seeking? And then this is what they say. Verses 5 and 6, John 18. They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am He. And when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus opens His mouth and proclaims the covenant personal name of God with such power that he knocks men over like a freight train just hit them. Okay? This is not a story of a weak man being overpowered by the strong in the garden. This is what makes verse 46 staggering. Okay? That the one who just did that, we read this back in our passage. Verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. And maybe you're wondering the same thing I've been wondering all week long. okay? That you're there and you're one of those cops that come into the garden and this man just knocked you and all your buddies down with the breath of his mouth. Which one is jumping up off the ground ready to throw the cuffs on that guy? <laughs> I have no idea what they were thinking by going through with this arrest. okay? And this shows you the, the stupidity of what of, of laying hands on the Son of God. Exceedingly stupid. They lay hands on the One with all authority. Okay? We got some athletic dudes at the church. You know, you like to run around. You like to wrestle with some other dudes. You know, kind of throw your weight around. But you don't go to the zoo and jump in the pen, pen with lions and gorillas and play football. You don't do that. Okay? They just laid hands on the One with all authority. The One with all authority. Listen to what Hebrews 1 verse 3 says about Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. That is, we just sang that. We just sang it. That is one of my favorite verses about Jesus. Every single molecule in all the galaxies that exist they're held together by the Word of Christ. And so try to picture this. These men, these police, these guards, soldiers, they laid hands on the One that is holding together every molecule in their body. He's holding their heartbeat in His hand while He's allowing them to lay hands on Him. What they're doing is exceedingly stupid. They are laying hands him on the One that upholds the universe by the Word of His power. What they did was exceedingly stupid and it's also exceedingly sinful. And I want you to see this. Exodus 19. We know the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. But Exodus 19 records that God comes down to visit His people and He descends on Mount Sinai in blazing fire. Blazing fire. Listen to what he tells the people in Exodus 19, verse 12. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You are a dead man. If you even dreamed to touch the mountain that God descended on, you're a dead man. Then listen to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 of the ark of God being brought into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6 verses 6 and 7 says when they came to the threshing floor Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down because of his error. and He died there beside the ark of God. I read that passage this week and I thought about this. If reaching out and putting the hand on a Box that symbolizes God's presence on earth. Okay? If reaching out and stopping that box from hitting the ground got someone an immediate death sentence, how much more when sinful men take their hands and lay them on Christ with violent intent? What they did was exceedingly sinful. God could have struck them down in a millisecond, took their heartbeat away, took every breath. Out of their lungs, this is a great sin. They lay hands on the Son of God. They seized him. Exceedingly stupid, exceedingly sinful. But Jesus allows this to happen. He allows this to happen. And so where we're at in this story. Try to visualize it. Here's where we are the one with all authority is now seized in chains, bound up in the garden. He's under guard. And at this point, one of the disciples of Jesus, John tells us that this was Peter. Peter cannot bear the thought of what's about to happen. He sees Jesus bound in chains. He cannot bear the thought of Jesus being taken into custody. And we read this in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. He draws a sword and he attempts to shed blood in the name of Christ. Okay? And I want you to see this is a murder blow. He did he wasn't trying to cut, you don't try to cut anybody's ear off. If just knife fight 101. Okay. If you ever find yourself in a knife fight, okay, you don't try to cut someone's ear off. Okay. Peter takes up this sword and he, and he intends to kill this man in the name of Christ. Now, Peter has been with Jesus for several years at this point. He has never seen Jesus take up a sword. He has never seen Jesus shed blood. So what is he thinking here? He thinks that he's actually serving Jesus. He thinks that he's doing what Jesus would have him do. Jesus is bound. Jesus is in handcuffs. And Jesus needs help, according to Peter. So Peter picks up the sword and he swings it. But instead of helping Christ, he's actually doing the exact opposite. Okay? This is a picture of trying to advance the kingdom of God through fleshly strength and worldly strategy. Okay? Our culture is filled with this. In a different way, same mistake. Okay? Peter slept when he should have prayed and drew down strength from God. And so now, because he 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 because he slept instead of prayed, he walks in the flesh instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is in he is thinking, his head mindset on the flesh and not the things of the Spirit of God. He thinks that he's serving Jesus, but he's actually doing the exact opposite. And a quick lesson for us as prayerless disciples of Jesus, you always default to worldly fleshly strategy. Nobody gravitates towards walking in the Holy Spirit. Nobody gravitates towards being filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't automatically happen. You pursue God. Okay, You actually gravitate away from the things of God and away from the things of Christ. Prayerlessness will always leave you with worldly strategy and fleshly strength. Jesus rebukes Peter for this. He rebukes him sharply. Matthew tells us that Jesus says this, Put your sword back. Put it back. Luke tells us, Jesus says, no more of this. And then in John's account, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? With those words, we see that Jesus understands something that Peter doesn't. Okay, Peter thinks that Jesus is in need of help. Well, we've already seen this. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not a weak man being overpowered. Jesus is not in need of help and He's not lacking power or strength. So let's just do a quick Bible inventory, and let's remember how much power Jesus has available to him at this moment, at any moment. Okay, I'll read you a verse in Judges chapter fifteen. This is about a man named Samson. Judges fifteen, verses fourteen through sixteen. The Bible says this about Samson: when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and the bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey put out his hand and took it and with it struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down one thousand men. And we know from the Word of God that the secret to Samson's physical strength was this man was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him and gave him supernatural strength. Let me read you a verse in the Bible of Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 34 and 35 says this, He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In the Word of God, and throughout church history, the Holy Spirit has empowered many people to minister in the name of Christ. But Jesus has received an anointing of the Holy Spirit that has no end. It's measureless. You can't even measure it. It's infinite. He has infinite Holy Spirit power at His disposal. So I just ask you this. Okay? I ask you this. If Samson, full of the Holy Spirit, could pick up a jawbone and do work on a thousand men in a moment, heaps upon heaps, stacking the bodies up, what do you think Jesus could have done in the garden? Snap the bonds off, off of His arms, full of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of power, and all of them would have failed in His presence. This is how much strength He has available to Him at any moment. By Himself and that's not even taken into account that in Matthew verse 20 chapter 26 verse 53 Jesus says this to Peter he says this to Peter do you think that i cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels peter's thinking that jesus is powerless and in need and jesus saying you have no idea what's going on i could take care of this in a moment. And the point of that verse is to show you that Jesus has enough firepower at His disposal to kill everybody on the planet in a millisecond. So the picture of Jesus in bonds taken into custody, you need to underline this in your soul. This is willing. Jesus is willingly allowing sinful man to lay hands on Him. He is willingly allowing these pathetic bonds to hold the One with all authority. And He's willingly restraining 12 legions of angels from torturing the whole world for destroying God's Christ. So at this point, Jesus is standing there bound and He just rebuked Peter and now He turns and He rebukes those that crowd that just arrest Him. Read verse 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as... A... As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So he rebukes these men for treating him like a criminal. And what he's basically saying is that they're treating him like he's been working in secret. That he's been plotting in secret. And what Jesus does is he turns it on them. He says, I'm not like you. I don't come out in the middle of the night with torches and in secret and doing things under the table. I do it in public. Everybody in Jerusalem knows where I've been. Everybody knows what I've been teaching. I haven't been hiding this. I don't work like you. I don't do things in hiddenness. And with these words, He's rebuking them for treating Him like a criminal, like a rebel. So Jesus allows Himself to fall into their hands, but He does not Allow them to go unwarned about their sin. They are guilty of a great sin. They have laid violent hands on the Son of God. Verse fifty through fifty-two. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And I just say, what a strange way to end our passage today. <laughs> Alright, point number four. Point number four from the passage. Jesus is abandoned by His disciples. When they realize that He's going into custody, He's really going to go. He's going to let this go down. Fear began to creep into their minds and it began to dominate them. All they could think about, I'm about to be arrested with Him. They're about to put chains on all of us. They're going to take us all in. And that thought, that fear of suffering, that fear of being persecuted, it dominated their minds and it caused them to abandon Christ. And the key word here is all. Circle that in your Bible if you do that sort of thing. They all fled. They all left Him. Mark wants us to intentionally see this. Everyone leaves. The same ones who boasted that they would never leave Jesus, they're nowhere to be found. They all left Him. These disciples are weak because they slept when they should have prayed. And instead of going to jail with Christ, they turn on the Savior in His hour of trial. This is a picture of weakness. And this is a picture of us. Okay? This is more than an example. It is that, but it's more than that. And here's what I mean. When you read this passage... Part of the takeaway is, man, I need to be praying instead of sleeping. And I needed to stand firm with Christ. And it is that. It is that example. You need to stay awake. But it's more than that. This is not just something that you are potentially guilty of. That you need to be on guard against. This is something that has already happened in your life and in mine. Thousands of times over. You have failed. You have abandoned Christ. This is a picture of us. They were weak and so are we. So are we. It's another reminder on the path to the cross. You see this as like a subplot just coming up over and over and over again. Why is Jesus even going to the cross? Because of the universal sinfulness of man. We have all failed Christ many times over. This means we all need atonement. We all need Jesus. And Jesus loves these disciples that forsook Him. Just let that sink in. They leave Him and He... In that moment, He could have walked out the back door and said, Sayonara. You'll walk out on me in my hour of trial. Sayonara. But He loves the ones that abandon Him. And He goes to the cross and He bleeds for the ones that turn on Him. This is the love of Christ. The last two verses, I admit to you this, they seem very, very random. Very random. But I think something is happening here. I'm confident that something is happening here. Mark is putting the failure of the disciples on display in verse 50. All of them fled. And then in verse 51 and 52, he zones in on just one of these cowards that leave Jesus. And so mark this down. Verse 51 and 52, they explain verse 50. They're just an example of verse 50. A more personal example of verse 50. Many see this, As a fulfillment of the prophecy in Amos 2.16 says this, Even the stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And the point is that no one remained with Jesus. Even valiant men, even the stout of heart, they flee away from Christ. This unnamed man, he's not one of the twelve. And in fact, many commentators believe that this is actually Mark himself. Inserting himself into this story. And I believe that they are probably right. And here's why I don't believe that the Holy Spirit includes random, pointless details just hours before the most important event in human history, the crucifixion of Christ. So this verse means something. It's in there for a reason. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. And the point is that they all fled, even Mark. Okay? And if that ter- interpretation is right, then the author of this Gospel is saying this, I was there and I left Jesus too. I betrayed my Lord. We all left Him. He was there by Himself. We abandoned Christ. The fact that there is no tunic and only undergarments, is a reminder that this story happens in the middle of the night. This man is dressed for sleep and the guards try to arrest this young man, he did the same thing that you would have done. You'd have left their pajamas, your pajamas in their hand, and you would have ran out the door for your life. This is the story. I want you to think about this. Just like in the Garden of Eden, there's a gospel grid here, okay? Just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve deserted God, and their nakedness was exposed. That's the picture you get here. In this garden of Gethsemane, this unnamed disciple deserts Christ and his nakedness is exposed. Why does it say he, read, he fled away naked in the Word of God? It's drawing us into this theme in Scripture that we need a covering for our sin. We have rebelled Christ against Christ. We have deserted Christ. And we need to be covered in the righteous garment of Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just like Adam in the first garden, every single disciple flees and failed to test and abandon the Lord, just like Adam, both gardens. But I want you to look closely at something. In the middle of this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, there is one. There is one who is standing firm. And I want us to draw all our attention on him as we close. Everybody flees and he stands firm. This is the love of Christ. Point number five from the passage. Jesus is all alone and He is standing firm. Drive this into your soul. No one stood with Him that night. This is the night that would lead to His murder. No one stood with Him. No one could. Left all alone and forsaken by His friends. And this is the lonely work that Jesus enters into to save your soul. The lonely work of atonement. No one stood by Him. None added to His work. None can boast as though they helped Him. He is alone bearing it all by Himself. He is the Savior. He alone is the Savior. 1 Samuel 2.2 says this, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you and there is no rock like our God. The Savior who agonized in prayer in the garden the Savior who is abandoned by all of His friends. The Savior who stands bound in chains. He's standing firm in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not crumbling. This is the strength of Christ. This is, this is our Jesus. This is the One that we love. I just Even now, I'm just reminded, I want to worship Him for His resolve to save us, to display His love for us, to obey the Father perfectly for us. He is standing firm. And Gethsemane, though all left Him, though all fled, He is standing firm. His shoulders are broad enough. His back is strong enough to bear our sins. And He's doing it. He's doing it. He is beginning this work of substitution. This great exchange, it's already beginning to happen. It's already beginning to happen. In the next few hours, Jesus will stand as our substitute before the Holy Judge. And He will receive all that we deserved. And it's already happening in the garden. Jesus, why was He forsaken? Why did all flee away from Him? Why did He experience that for you? Jesus is forsaken so that all who would trust Him never would be. He receives all that we deserve. We receive all that was due Him. That is the grace of God and the Gospel. This is substitution. If you don't understand substitution, you will never understand the Gospel. This is is Him. Standing firm. In the garden. Do you see the grace of God in this story? You see this? This is awesome. And then the question has to hit you. Why is He doing this? Why is Jesus standing firm? Why didn't He walk out of the, out of the back of that garden and say, I am done with you? You always sin. You always rebel. leaving me in my moment of trial. Why did He not walk out? Why is He standing firm? Now, I want you to think back on that question that we started with. Have you ever been betrayed by the ones that should have loved you? Jesus has. You just saw it happen every single one of us. He has tasted this personally from you and from me. But here's the deeper question. And this is the marvelous grace of God, the deep love of Christ. Flip the question around. Have you ever been loved By someone that should have forsaken you. I have. And I have good news for you today. You have too. He should have walked out of the back of that garden. But he stood firm. You have been loved by one that should have forsaken you. And this is the death of Christ. Sometimes we can have terrible ideas of the love of Jesus. Little soft unbiblical ideas of the love of Jesus. We can say little taglines and cliches. God don't make junk. Jesus Jesus died for me. I'm valuable. Jesus died for me. That That is missing the entire point of the Gospel. He should have forsook you, but He stands firm and He loves you. And when you understand the Gospel rightly, it does two things. It humbles you. Unthinkably humbles you. You are low in the presence of God. Why? Because He should have torched me. He should have judged me. He should have forsaken me. But you are thankful, eternally thankful. Why? Because He loved me instead. He stood firm in the garden on my behalf. Why is Jesus being arrested? Because He's loving us. And He's going to do it all the way to His bloody cross. He's going to demonstrate His love for you and His death for your sins. You should have been forsaken by Jesus. Know this. Without any doubt, you have rebelled against Him. Just like those disciples, you have abandoned him, you have failed him, and you deserve to be forsaken by Christ. But the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus, is that he dies. Instead of giving you judgment, instead of forsaking you, he dies for you. Romans 5 makes a huge deal out of this. Okay? He didn't die for good people. If you're a good person, good luck. Okay? You don't exist according to the Word of God, and Jesus did not die for you according to the Word of God. He died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died for His enemies. This is the Gospel of Christ. This is the grace of God. When you understand this, you understand that there is no love like the love of Christ. You have been loved by one that should have forsaken you. This is why the Word of God calls it the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You can't even begin to, to stuff the glory of the love of Christ into a human soul. It surpasses knowledge. It's higher than the heavens. Okay? This is the infinite love of Christ. So here's the question for you: Your Savior's in the garden? He should have walked out on you, but He's standing firm. And the question for you today is this. When is the last time that the love of Christ caused you to hit your knees and praise God for what He's done for you? There's no comparable news to this. There's none beside this. That Christ died for our sins. The simplicity of it, but the beauty of it. When's the last time it brought you to your knees? And if you ever understand this, you ever see it, do you know how easy repentance and faith is if you understand the love of Jesus oh you mean the one that should have walked out on me you mean he offers me salvation as a free gift if I just trust him are you kidding me I just return if I repent of my sins and follow this Christ are you kidding me no one's ever loved me like this this is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and what would it look like in your life if you really grabbed a hold of this how easy would the thought of bending your entire life to serve this Christ who loved you instead of, he should have walked out on you, but he showed you great love? How easy should the thought be of serving this God with everything that you have, with all your years placed in his service? You're a blood, you are a blood bought child of God if you're a Christian in this room. You have been loved. One true glimpse of Jesus going into custody for us should cause us to marvel at the depths of God's love for us. Just thinking about it, we ought to worship Jesus even now. He's in bonds, and He could snap them in a moment. And He's heading to His crucifixion, and He does this for us. Jesus is being, Jesus is being arrested. This is not a sad story to sit there and mope and cry about. Okay, This is not a sad story. This is a love story. He is not being overpowered. He is there willingly. He is there to bring about salvation. It's a love story from Jesus. He is not a weak man being overpowered. He is a sheep willingly going to the slaughter. He is the suffering servant of the Lord that's laying down His life for the sheep. And then He says in verse 49, He says, let the Scripture be fulfilled. And I want to close with that final point. On this night, all this is going down, and Jesus appealed to the eternal counsel of God in sacred Scripture. And He was certain that it would turn out just as it was written in the Word of God. Let the Scripture be fulfilled. Zechariah had prophesied of this night. Zechariah thirteen seven: The shepherd is being struck and the sheep are now scattered. Let the Scriptures... Be fulfilled. Even before the foundation of the world, this night had been carefully planned in the mind of God. And now you see this purpose, God's plan is advancing. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is now in custody and everything is on schedule. In just a few hours, he will die for our sins. Nothing can stop this. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. The will of the Father will be perfectly accomplished just as it is written in sacred Scripture. And I just want to make a quick application as we close. What would it look like in your life if you walked with this same settled confidence toward the written Word of God? What would that look like in your life? If it was like a tattoo on your soul. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. We could catch you Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, and on Tuesday. You're full of confidence in the Word of God. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. What would it look like if you really laid hold of the promises of God in scripture with bold confidence? Let the scripture be fulfilled in my life. What would this look like? What would it look like in your job? What would it look like in your family? It would look the opposite of walking around in perpetual anxiety, perpetual fear, perpetually being distracted away from Christ. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. I say, Grace Community Church, we become like Jesus in this area, people of the book, full of confidence in the Word of God. I'll give you an example of this in Acts 27, verse 25, listen to this. She says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. It will be exactly as I have been told. You know how encouraging it is to walk up into a conversation with a disciple of Jesus that talks like that? You know how encouraging that is? One that's not full of of the words of the world and the fear of man and unbelief. Someone who God speaks in His Word and that settles it for them. And they, they walk in this disposition. It will be exactly as God has said in His Word. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. In this story, God just used the worst sin in human history to bring about salvation to the ends of the earth. Surely, surely, this same God can use the worst scenario and circumstances in your life to bring about good and bring about His glory. Just as He said, Romans 8.28, what would it look like for you to have confidence toward the Word of God? Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus did not forsake us in the garden. And He has no plans on forsaking us now. We talk about Romans 8, 32 a lot. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's the hard part. He's already done the greatest work. How will He not with Him graciously give us all things? He has no plans to forsake you. What would it look like for you to be filled up with confidence towards this Christ? Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this plan, Lord, that You devised to glorify Yourself and to save sinners from all the nations, Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank You today. We thank You for standing firm on our behalf. We thank You for Your work of substitution. We thank You for glorious grace, Lord. Help us to freshly rejoice in what You've done, Lord Jesus. Be praised, Lord. Help us not to be like those nine lepers that went away cleansed and didn't worship You. Help us to be like that one that comes back and falls at Your feet, Jesus, and proclaims Your Word, proclaims Your value. Lord, we ask for Your help. Help us to glory in Christ. Help us to love You, Lord Jesus, for what You've done. Thank You for Your great love for us. Thank You for Your great love for us, Lord. We remember that You loved us, Lord, and it was undeserved, God. We pray, God, that You drive Your glorious Gospel into our souls, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.